0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. So it was the conscious decision to shoot towards the property line without checking the distance that made the freak accident happen. And so when it's that kind of unsafe choice, well, the consequences of it are just kind of, that's the way it
1: falls. Please rise. part is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, I'm really excited about our show today.
2: I am too. This is um, obviously nothing really happy ever happens in the cases that we talk about. But in terms of facts, this this case has very interesting facts to me. It It showed me how much I don't know about what we're going to talk
1: about. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're definitely going to learn a lot. But that's not even the reason I'm uh, I'm excited about today's show. I mean, the case is a fascinating case. But I wanted to ask you, Yvonne, have you ever heard of the Leadville 100? No. All right, so the Leadville 100 is a 100-mile race in the mountains of Colorado. And uh, it's all above, like, 11,500 feet and so it's known as like one of the toughest or the toughest race in the U.S., if not the world. Uh, and it's long been a, a sort of bucket list item of mine. Uh, and my wife thinks I'm nuts for even thinking about doing it. But the reason why I'm bringing it up is because our guest today, Lee Hunt... Partner of the Hunt Law Firm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, ran or, or did uh, the Leadville 100. Did you do it twice, Lee?
0: Well, I've done the run and the bike.
1: Okay. So, yeah.
0: And uh, we could do a podcast on the Leadville 100. I think right. that would, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, in 2016, I did the 100 mile run. Oh, my God. And then, and then last year, I did the bike race.
1: So, uh, I mean, I, I've heard stories. So I, I, um, uh, now I can't even think of born to run. That's where I yep. first heard it was in the book born to right. run. And I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta try I gotta shoot for that. But, uh, <laughs> I, I heard stories that people talk about that, uh, that you start hallucinating during the race. Cause it gets so long and, and you're just out on the, on the trail. And, you know, somebody, uh, described seeing a pile of, uh, stones and thought it was skulls or something like that. <laughs> did you have any, uh, any hallucinations?
0: Well, at one point, so at at about mile 80, you go up this long mountain. And so it's kind of the top of the last big mountain climb. And and that for me, that was like at 3 a.m. or something like that. And you get to the top of it. And first of all, it's Colorado. And so um, you just start getting these smells of things. And I couldn't (laughs) tell if it was, you know, was I hallucinating or was this really, you know, these... All these guys from Colorado and they were all dressed up in like Star Wars hats and they had lightsabers. And so they were essentially creating their own hallucinations. And you have to say,
1: okay, is this real or is this a hallucination? that's That's awesome. I mean, that makes it even better. So you saw these guys out on the trail? Right. They were out on the trail.
0: Basically, they set up at the top of the mountain just to have a huge all night party. (laughs) And and welcome in these, you know, bleary eyed runners that are barely attached to anything. (laughs) Oh, man. It was great.
2: I do have uh, to say it uh, it sounds like it sounds like a lot more fun to be one of those guys rooting (laughs) (laughs) rooting crazy people like uh, Lee, like you and Steve on. Um, I think I'd I'd prefer the spectating side of things. But so is it 100 miles in a is this a stupid question? 100 (laughs) miles in a row?
0: The way that I always talk about it and the way that I even think about it is it's almost like what we do in trials and stuff like that. You never think about the entire thing all at once. So you never think about, oh my goodness, okay, starting this morning at four o'clock, I'm going to go run for a hundred miles. You just sort of say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go out in the woods today and right. it's just going to be a really long day, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and kind of the fun part about it too, is the second half of the race, you get to have um, pacers so you get to have, halfway through, you get to pick up your friends and then they get to run with you. And so I, so my 11 year old daughter, I picked her up at midnight and she ran like five miles with me. And then my wife ran with me from like 2 a.m. until 4 a.m. And then my oldest daughter ran with me the last like about hour. And I say run, and she, you know, it's right. great because I have a teenager. And so she was like, Dad, can we hurry up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah she exactly. Take it gone, you know, 95 miles. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then she's looking at me as I'm, you know, throwing up in the ditch. Like
1: <laughs> right,
0: right, right.
3: Exactly. <laughs> <Pretty> <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. yeah, I told I told Yvonne if, if if I do this, which uh which uh, you know, it is one of my uh, one of my goals, if I do this, uh, she's going to be on my my support crew and and I think she's already got her stormtrooper helmet picked out. Perfect. Well, I'm ready. I, um, Sign me up to be there with both of you. Right. Okay.
0: Awesome.
2: <laughs> I have like I have enough lightsabers for all of us.
0: So.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Done. Exactly. Well, anyways, that, that is, that by itself is a tremendous accomplishment and it's, it, it has nothing to do with the law. Uh, but, but I mean, it takes a, a tremendous amount of training, willpower, and just, uh, uh you know, uh, fortitude, just sticking with it. I mean, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment and, uh, it's something I've thought about for a long time. And, uh, and just to, just to add on to that, Yvonne, I mean, Lee hasn't just done the Leadville 100. He has twice, uh, finished the Hawaii Ironman once in 2011 and 2016. Uh, and I, I should say, and I'm not even getting to your legal accomplishments, Lee, you're, uh, in college, he was a Division One uh, captain of his soccer team at uh, Western Kentucky University, and he was an academic All-American in 1997.
2: So, uh, so uh, is is this fantastic? A Lee? Maybe this is a Lee Hunt. A fan podcast now right, maybe.
1: Know, right? exactly great i'm having so much
0: fun <laughs> yeah exactly
1: well uh well lee let's talk a little bit about your legal accomplishments so you you as i said you're the founding partner of your law firm the hunt law firm in santa fe new mexico and you can look up lee at huntlaw.com. um you went to the university of kentucky law school finished in the top 10 percent, and uh were the symposium editor for the kentucky law journal and um have just had tremendous success uh, out in New Mexico, and uh, and we're just so uh, so happy to have you on the show.
0: Well, thank you. It's a thrill to be on here. I enjoyed this show a whole lot.
1: Oh, good, good. Well, we uh, we're looking forward to it. And as I was, uh, and as Yvonne mentioned at the uh, at the beginning, I mean, this is a uh, just a really fascinating case. Um, the case is was called uh, Eric and Luke Armstrong versus Express Ranches LLC. It was tried in July of 2019 in Rio Arriba County, New Mexico. Uh, and, and basically what happened is this involved uh, hunting on, uh, on ranches in, uh, in New Mexico. And when we talk about uh, ranches, I mean, these are, uh, and I, not, I noticed in your, in your opening and closing, you described them as maybe not huge ranches, but they're like 180,000 acres or something like that, which, which sounds like a, a pretty large ranch to me. Um, but, uh, but essentially what happened is you had uh, two hunters out at Atmore Ranch, uh, which was owned by express services and they were being led by a a guide, uh, and they were hunting for elk and one had a bull tag and one had a cow tag. And towards the end of the day, um, they spotted a, a couple of elk, uh, that they set up on and their guide, um uh, told them how far they were, told them how to set up, uh, and essentially told them that the elk were about 250, uh, yards away. And this, and what I should have explained is this is 250 yards, uh, uphill. Uh, there's a, there's an elevation change. It turns out that they were actually only about 160 yards away, but because of the, the mistake by the guide in, uh, saying what the distance was it caused them to uh uh sight their rifles a little bit high uh and what um and right behind uh where they were shooting was another ranch or the the line of a ranch in a road on the Ute creek ranch and your clients uh eric and luke armstrong were walking along a roadway there uh i think i think what you said is uh There maybe their mother was driving a a a vehicle and and maybe they're walking with one or two of their children, Um, and so when these two hunters uh, simultaneously take the shot, uh, they shoot high and uh, the the bullets travel from what I could tell a little bit over thirteen hundred feet or they they're about thirteen hundred feet to where your clients were, uh, and. Uh, most likely um, ricocheted off of something and uh, one or some bullet fragments struck Luke in the face, Uh, went through his cheek, uh, caused damage to his mouth, uh, knocked him over and another bullet or bullet fragment uh, went into the abdomen of Eric and knocked him over. And, um, and, uh caused significant injuries to him. And, and what i should say about both luke and eric especially eric it sounded like was a very um active person um it, i know you mentioned that he was um uh, i think he was a black belt in martial arts he uh, had competed in a number of these uh, races like the tough mudder and spartan which by the way Ivana i've done a few of those too and those are a lot of fun um and uh And uh, has done and and just really was an outdoor active person. Luke was a state police officer. Eric was a a physical therapist, Uh, caused them both significant injury. Um, And the interesting thing I thought about this case, Yvonne, was that the the guide um, was very uh, um, honest and just basically admitted that he had made a mistake. Uh, And not in not following the the hunting safety rules. But the owners of the ranch express services, which was owned by um, two people out of uh, Oklahoma, Nedra and Bob Funk, which uh, which I uh, looked them up. um, They just absolutely refused uh, to participate uh, in the case, di- from what I understand, didn't show up for depositions, didn't show up for the trial. And so essentially, n- no one was there for express services other than this uh, this guide. Uh, but yet, express services wouldn't admit or wouldn't take responsibility for what had happened to your clients, uh, Luke and Eric. And I should mention the verdict in the case uh, was 2628000 for Luke and 2628000 for Eric for a total of $5,256,000 um, for the two of them. And, uh, and, and we'll talk um, as we go on about how you got the jury to arrive at those numbers um, for the damages because I thought that was pretty interesting as well. But, um, but anyways, that's the, that's the basics of the case. Did I get that uh, generally rightly?
0: Absolutely. I think you got that right. And the the fascinating thing, and I think this is kind of part of what you were hitting on early, Steve, was it's just such a crazy set of circumstances. You know, you've got a couple of guys that are hunting a thousand feet away from guys who are walking behind trees on a separate ranch on a separate road. And so it's one of those things that, you know, you couldn't have done this if you tried. Right. And so, in some ways, you know, that presented I think to the defendants, they looked at it as, well, gosh, everybody's going to understand that sometimes accidents just happen. And it's just such a crazy circumstance. Nobody's really going to think anybody did anything wrong. Um, and so that was part of just the uniqueness of the facts where everybody was engaged because it was so intriguing on just thinking, how did this happen?
1: Right, Exactly. And, and and I thought you did just a great job, <clears throat> sort of going through um, the the rules of hunting. And um, you know, because I you you made a point of mentioning that in New Mexico, especially in this part of New Mexico, uh, I, I would imagine it's a very conservative county. I mean, I think you know at one point you said to the jury, uh, you know, the reason why they're not showing up is because they don't think anybody in Rio Arriba is going to going to, you know, give any kind of significant money about this. They don't, they don't think you're going to take this seriously. Um, and so you did a great job empowering them, but, um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, there was probably a concern and I, and I want to hear from you about, you know, that this is a hunting community. Um, you know, they, they support hunting. It's part of the culture and that, um, you know, maybe this county isn't going to hold somebody responsible for what they were essentially calling a freak accident, uh, while hunting. And, um, and and even, you know, I, I think even though you did a great job of getting, um, the, uh, the guide to admit his mistakes at the same time, he also was kind of saying, well, I thought I had done it right. I thought I had, I thought there was a, a sufficient backstop, you know, to the, to the shot. I thought, um, you know that we weren't close enough to the property, that kind of stuff. But, um, but at the end of the at, at the end of the time, he did take responsibility for what he did. But ha- how, talk about I know that was a long winded way of getting to a question. But um, <laughs> talk about how you you know approach this case, knowing that you know hunting is such a big um, you know activity in this area. It's it, it's uh, part of the culture. I mean, everybody in uh, Rio Arriba County, um, New Mexico hunts um you know how ha- how you how yeah. you a- approach that
0: well it really started with Voidir. and where it started there was you know i asked a question at the beginning of Voidir, and the judge gave us a little bit over an hour and and it's it's such a great um new mexico rural new mexico story because this is a courthouse that's basically in the middle of nowhere it was a courthouse back in the day when there were all these fights over um, Spanish land grants that was sieged and what they, they held folks hostage in the courthouse and there were still bullet holes in the courthouse oh my God. from, from that <laughs> raid back in the day over the fight over land rights. And so that's the community and they're still proud of that heritage. And so what, you know, we ask a question and say, okay, you understand this is a case that involves hunting. And how many of you either yourselves or your spouse or significant other are involved in hunting. And basically every single person in that room raises their hand. Yeah. And, you know, and so, but what we wanted to do, and this is kind of what I think ultimately wound up driving the verdict in many, many ways was from the word go, the next thing out of my mouth was, I want everybody to understand this is not an anti hunting case. This is not an anti gun case. This is a safe hunting case. And so just like anything, I mean, what what jurors that hunt want is people to be responsible. They want responsible hunting because it's the folks that aren't doing it responsibly that give everybody the bad name. And so if, you know, what we had to do was sort of seize the mantle in that case on, this is about making the community safe from hunters uh, that aren't following the rules, and once that was the frame of the case, you know, we seated three or four, you know, Trump supporters who were we seated an NRA member, we seated a guy who was a an Army Ranger, and when he was a Ranger, he was a sniper for, you know, in one I think in Vietnam, and so you know, we seated guys and and ladies on our jury that many times you would say, okay, those are people I don't want on my jury. And they were perfect for this case because you knew if you got them there, they were going to go to bat for you on every single issue. And uh, so that kind of made it fun because we were forced to think differently than just sort of check the boxes on who do we want on our jury, but actually apply it to that case. Yeah, Yeah, that's really
2: interesting because I would have been... In reading about the case, I was I was wondering, you know, first of all, how much of your pool knew more about um, hunting than I did because I learned a lot just from your opening statement, and it sounds like they, most of your jurors did know a lot about it. But then, whether that would be a good thing, because I think a lot of times in cases, whatever the subject matter is, you get worried that you're going to put a juror on who knows or thinks they know a lot about the subject area because they might bring stuff into the jury room that's outside of the case, that's outside of the evidence in the case. Um, but I think it's really, it makes sense the way you're describing it, that if you make it about, um, doing this safely, protecting the community, then you get all those people invested in it.
0: Right. You get them invested in it. And then, you know, the fortunate thing was some of the errors that were made were fairly basic errors. And so, you know, the folks that are hunters, they're sitting there thinking to themselves, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, I wouldn't have wanted somebody else to do it that way. And so you really, you know, if on our good days, we wanted to put those jurors that were hunting in the shoes of our folks, not in the shoes that were taking the shots, you know, and our guys were out hunting as well. I mean, they were avid hunters. They were just scouting on that day instead of actually hunting. But, you know, it it was easy to do because everybody was involved in hunting, you know, on both sides of the case.
1: All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. and You can find them at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos. Stuff for your website,
1: settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally, it is anything technology based, or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So, pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770 554. 1633 that's legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com
2: and Steve don't forget we have a gift for our listeners oh yeah
1: I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up so, yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So, mention the podcast, Great Trials Podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com, Legal Technology Services. Uh, give them a try. Yeah, I was thinking. You know, when you were saying that you had a member uh, from the NRA and and somebody who was a, a sniper, I mean, they they got to understand uh, you know uh, safe hunting you know better than anybody. And when you know some of the things that you pointed out as far as <clears throat> as far as the hunting safety rules is, you know, they, that the guide you know basically estimated how far the elk were without using a rangefinder. And you know, and, and I think you made the point that he was twenty steps away from going and getting his rangefinder and just confirming how far the elk were. And that you know, and that's one thing you you just gotta do uh, and then that they hadn't even sighted their rifles, which you know, to somebody who doesn't uh, shoot rifles, to somebody who doesn't go out and hunt, they might not really understand how important that is. but to a sniper and to a uh, NRA member, they're gonna understand that, yeah, you got to make sure, that, you know, your your sights are working right, so that where you're looking at is where you're shooting, uh, <clears throat> and you explain the difference between, you know, the elevation in Oklahoma, where these uh, two hunters were from, uh, and, and New Mexico, which this, the elevation here was uh, almost 8,000 feet, um, and so, you know, a, a significant difference in how um uh, bullets travel. But then the, the other issues of being close to neighboring property, being close to a well traveled road, and then um, you know, not having a sufficient backstop, you know, in case you missed the shot. So um but I gotta think that the, those jurors really had to get that and uh and and make it uh you know relatively easy for them uh, to understand.
0: Yeah, I think they got it pretty quick. And you know the other thing about the the critical thing about this trial and certainly most trials is understanding where you are, understanding the community that you've got and the jury that you've got. And that was one thing that I think we understood. and What we understood about the county where we were is that everybody hunted, but that one of the things that the folks in that county dislike is outsiders that come in, buy up the good hunting land, and then bring all their friends from out of state in to start shooting up the game. And so, you know, we understood that going into it. And I think the insurance company just didn't, you know, they just looked at it as any old case and they didn't understand the dynamics that they were really, you know, you don't want to overstate it, but they were walking into a hostile environment if they weren't really, really careful. And instead, what they did was just played into all those biases that were working in our favor, they played into them from the word go and did everything we could have asked to give us the ammunition to use that in such a way that the jury just wasn't going to cut them any slack.
2: Yeah. I mean, the message that you're sending by, you know, the jury doesn't see what happens before trial, but the message that you're sending by not showing up to trial is just not good. I mean, these people are here (laughs) with jury duty and they're stuck there. Whatever they want to do, they're stuck there giving their time. And the message that you're sending, whether you mean it or not, is that you're too good for it if they, or that your time is more valuable than theirs. I, I was really interested in this, in how the express um, ranches or express services or the, their a, approach to this case or, or lack of approach to this case. I mean, was it, was it that way from the beginning you know, pre-suit that,
0: or? you know, it was that way from the beginning. I mean, for one thing, the Liberty Mutual was the insurance company that was handling the case. And they never paid any attention to this case. I mean, they made a zero offer initially and mm-hmm. just said, we're not paying. We're not responsible. Um, they never took our clients' depositions. They never, um, we took their depositions of, of the hunting guide. Um, they didn't depose our expert. They didn't hire their own expert. They just, they looked at it and they just kind of got out their calculator and they said, okay, Luke has $5,000 in medical expenses. Eric has $3,000 in medical expenses. And that's a bunch of chiropractic care. So we're going to offer you a hundred thousand dollars and we think you ought to take that. And that was it. So it made it, it, it's, and, They never gave us any risk or any incentive to actually settle the case. And so it was one of those, you know, the way that I've kind of talked about the case is it's one of those cases that honestly, we all have tons of them sitting in our offices. I had this case for probably two years. And because Liberty Mutual wasn't doing anything on the case, it just wasn't going anywhere. And I hadn't dug into it because they hadn't really forced us to. And so I never appreciated what it really could be until very, very close to the time that we had to try it, you know, until you're sitting down with your clients. And I still so vividly remember sitting down with um, Luke's wife because I was having a hard time really getting a grasp on the damages in the case, because what Luke had was he got hit by a, a shrapnel from the bullet and it went through his lower lip. And he had to have some surgery to fix his lower lip. But it looked great. Um, The surgeon did a good job. There were no issues with it. He's a tough old state trooper who's seen more in a year than I'll probably ever see. So, I mean, he was the last one to complain about it. And so I finally got her talking about it. And she said, you know, there's just so many things that I miss. I miss being able to kiss my husband the way that I did before, because now... It sends these kind of shock waves through him and he just, it, he just doesn't like it. And food falls out of his mouth and he can't drink out of a, a regular cup. And, you know, then you start doing kind of the hard work of digging in to really understand the impact on these folks' lives, totally separate from, quote, what the injury is. And then you realize that, OK, there's a real story to tell. here, And there's some real significant impact on these folks. And it it was really then that you just say, you know, you're so glad when insurance companies miss the boat on a case and you're saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for letting me try this case.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
2: Right. Right. You don't have to, you don't have to take a hard decision to the client right before trial. They, you know, there was no choice for you to make, but to try it and and good thing that you did. That's right. Was the, um, the guide, I know that at trial, he said, he basically said I was negligent You know, did did he do that in in discovery or was that something that happened when everything was coming out in front of him at trial?
0: It really, in discovery, he didn't own up to it nearly like he did at trial. And, you know, I think some of it was it's easier to say all those things when you're sitting in. We wound up going, it was fun because we went to the ranch exactly where this happened in this old log cabin. Um, where the, the hunters stayed. And that's where we took his deposition so that I could have him show me where everything happened, you know. Oh, that's a great so idea. it was really fun. And it was also, because then you've got the whole thing in your mind. You've got it with him as well. Um, but in deposition, I really, as much as anything, I wanted to hear his version of it. And I just wanted to to see who he was and who he was in relationship to the folks that owned the ranch and it was just kind of one of those gut instincts where he was ultimately a genuinely good guy um, who genuinely loves the ranch, loves New Mexico, loves hunting, um, and was just honest to the end of the day. And so it was one of those where I didn't push him on it in mm-hmm. deposition. I really, but you just kind of feel like you know what? If I get him there, he he knows he was wrong you know, he, what he told me in deposition was as soon as he heard them take the shot and then he heard some people kind of scream and he said, he just felt his stomach fall to the floor. And we've all had that feeling. Mm -hmm. And we usually have that feeling when we know we've screwed up. And so it was his way of saying, I knew what I had just done was wrong. And so it was just in trial and in, it's just giving him a chance to do that, you know, giving him a chance to say it we kind of messed this up and I wish it hadn't happened. And then the beauty of it in what we're already talking about is then he's not the bad guy. He was a guy that everybody was going to like, and he was a local, but it wasn't on him. He wasn't the one that was dragging everybody to court. It was all the folks that weren't there that were dragging them to court. And um, so that kind of helped in getting him to say, yeah, I wish I wasn't here and I, I wish this hadn't happened
1: yeah you know one thing I was thinking and, and I, I really like the way you handled it in closing, but you made the point of, uh, of of mentioning that both the guide and I think even the defense lawyer came across as as nice guys um, and um, and you know that they you know the reason why they're only putting the, sort of their nice guys out there is because they wanted to get a discount, they wanted you not to give full justice um and you made a great point of saying you know that the fact that they're nice guys doesn't mean they should you know get any less justice um but you know i i i mean you know that can be a hard thing to do is when you um when you've got you know people on the other side who who uh you know just come up, come off as really friendly nice guys i mean that can make your job at uh, in the courtroom difficult sure it
0: can. And so in those circumstances, you find out who's not the nice guy, who's, <laughs> right. the, who's the puppeteer behind the scenes. It's really forcing all these nice guys to come into this corporate. <laughs> right, right. Exactly.
1: Well, and, and I wanted to go back for a second. So so the because um, you mentioned how, you know, people in this county and in New Mexico, you know, they don't like outsiders coming in, you know, and, and it pretty much sounded like that's what this family was. So it's it, it's this. Or this wealthy couple, Bob and Ned Rafunk, who started a company called um, was it Express Employment or something like that? But it sounded like it was some yes. sort of an employment agency. Yeah. Um, and and had made uh billions of dollars. And so had um, you know, and and uh, I, I did a little research on them and saw that they make the uh Oklahoma news uh quite often, uh, especially when they were going through their divorce. But um um, you know, so I mean I mean, basically, you had that situation here where you had these these people who, um, you know, came in. They had a lot of money, so they decided they were going to buy a ranch. But then they weren't taking care of the ranch the way they were supposed to. People get hurt, and then they don't even come to take responsibility for it.
0: You know, we certainly had that. Now, the the, the way the trial played out was the company that owned this ranch was a pretty small company that was basically just set up to hold the ranch. And so the judge didn't let us get into who Nidra and Bob Funk really were in terms of the billions of dollars and all those things. But some of that, you don't have to, you know, the jury could figure it out. I mean, they could figure out that this was an Oklahoma company that owned some of the best land around and you didn't need, even though we wanted to, and, you know, it wasn't because of a a strategic choice. It was because the judge was saying, no, you're not bringing all that evidence. (laughs) Right. Um, But ultimately, you know, sometimes just enough of that goes a long way. And but I do think that what what part of the arrogance of not showing up for court was that they were above reproach. It didn't matter what this little jury in Rio Arriba County did. It wasn't going to touch them. And so they weren't going to waste their time for a deposition or waste their time actually coming to court. So that much of it certainly came through.
1: So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design. SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online.
2: Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, that's you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with.
1: Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found, too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm.
2: They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website, and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do.
1: Exactly, and, and you know the thing. Uh, another thing I like about them is they're they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day, and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which. Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that.
2: Yes, they're awesome.
1: So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644, or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And
2: tell them we sent you.
1: So uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, I mean, I, I think I certainly understand based on the facts that you had, but you, you uh, made a decision not to um, bring a suit against the actual shooters. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, about what, the, what your decision process was there?
0: Sure. The shooters were both Oklahoma City or Oklahoma State Troopers, um, and they were the son-in-law of the funks was a state trooper. And so they were basically friends with the owner's son-in-law. I and mean, they had been out there a whole bunch of times. And in, in we took their depositions. And basically what they said in deposition was, look, we were following the orders of the guy. And uh, so he told us which direction to aim. He told us the yardage. We normally hit our targets. We did everything that he told us to. And so, you know, the the decision was we have essentially a corporate owned ranch on one side, and we have a couple of state troopers on the other side. We didn't want the case to be about them at all. We didn't want it to be a hunter error kind of thing, because then again, you're kind of putting the jury's having to make a decision. Okay, if I was standing there with my gun and a guy told me to do these things, I probably would have done the same thing. And So we just basically ignored them um, the whole time. I mean, we did. I think we filed suit originally and named them. But after we took their depositions, we dropped them from the case and and filed some motions and different things to keep them off the verdict form. That was the worry, right, that they were going to get some comparative fault. But once we were able to keep them off the special verdict form, then it was a no-brainer on keeping them out of the case.
1: Yeah, I I I noticed even in your opening you didn't even mention their names. You just, you know, basically said there was these hunters and then the 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 defense lawyer made a point of making sure to mention their names and and, you know, what they were out there doing. Um but uh but yeah, I thought that uh and, and you know, you're exactly right. I mean, they they were basically following the instructions of their guide. I thought it was interesting how uh they found out that they had uh had been given the wrong distance. You want to talk about that a little bit? My oh, gosh!
0: As I sit here right now, why don't you remind well, me? What, what I saw,
1: <laughs> <laughs> what I saw, was that, that they didn't even realize that they had had the wrong distance until the wildlife department came and told them that the elk were 160 yards, not 250 yards, and that that's, I think
0: that's exactly right.
1: Okay, and then that's when they realized that they that they had basically lined up for the wrong the wrong distance.
0: That's right. It was not until the investigation afterwards. So they just didn't, you know, for them, what they were saying was we couldn't understand it. You know, these elk were standing broadside to us. They're not moving this huge target. They're only 150 yards away. We fire our shots and we're waiting for them to drop and nothing happens. And so, yeah, it wasn't until that investigation that came through. And I was really interested to see if the guide was going to try to back off of that or if the, the hunters were gonna back off of that. And you know part of the deal also was we talked to the lawyer that was representing the hunters before their depositions and said, look, we're not, we're not trying to make these guys targets. Here's the story that we understand. They were given the wrong yardage, they followed the directions. If that's what we hear in deposition, then they're not gonna be part of this case anymore. So it gave them all the more incentives since especially they were already kind of tied to that anyway but I was just worried about folks backing away from it.
1: Right, right.
2: Well, so that kind of relates to something we touched on earlier. and um, reading your, your closing, I think you did a good job of addressing this, but it might be something you started handling, um, like with some of the other issues that you started handling during Vore Dyer. But can you talk a little bit about what you did to sort of manage this idea that it was a freak accident And sort of prevent that from, from, you know, prevent the jury from going that way.
0: Sure. I think that, that it certainly started just with basically saying, okay, what are the rules of safe hunting? What are the basic things that everybody has to do? What you have to do is you can't, you have to know the backstop for your shots. You have to know the distance of your target. Because if you're shooting towards someone else's property, You don't know what's on the other side of that line. And so that's when folks get put at risk is when exactly those things happen. So the accident, I mean, it was still, and I don't think we necessarily ran away from, it was a freak kind of thing that those bullets traveled. Because seriously, if you looked at the property line, there's a whole line of trees in between the property line and the road. So not only did it have to go 1,300 feet, somehow the shrapnel had to find its way around trees and still hit our guys.
3: <laughs> you know, yeah.
0: So wow. it, it was a freak accident, but you know, lots of the stuff we do is freak accidents. And so what we always talk about is how do you make sure that the freak accident doesn't harm somebody? Because a freak accident's always in the cars if you're doing something dangerous. So it was the conscious decision to shoot towards the property line without checking the distance that made the freak accident happen. And so when it's that kind of unsafe choice, well, the consequences of it are just kind of, that's the way it falls.
2: Yeah. I thought that was very effective reading what you said, you know, you saying this starts with a bad decision, you know, that, that it that everything comes back to the bad decisions because then it doesn't seem like it, it, it takes the focus away from as you said, something that, you know, it's a one in a million shot. Basically, you couldn't, <laughs> you yeah. couldn't do it. You couldn't do that again. If, you know, if somebody paid you, um, but then you're focusing on the decisions that, that went into it and not sort of the physics of what happened after that.
0: Right. Well, I think that was what, certainly what we always tried to do and what, you know, I mean, it, it, what we all try to do, I mean, make it about the choices of the defendant. And if it's those choices that then lead to a bad outcome, even if it's a crazy bad outcome that nobody could have predicted, the choice was predictable. You know, the guide still made the choice to say, okay, you two guys shoot at exactly the same time and we're just going to hope it works out.
2: Yeah. Um, I had a, sorry, Steve, I I know you're about to ask something, but I have a, I have a question that uh, I noticed. It seemed like things were pretty punchy in this trial. Like, Openings weren't too long, closings weren't too long. You know, you mentioned having about an hour for Vordire. I'm wondering if that's typical for this venue, or if that was something kind of unique because of this case and the fact that certain folks didn't show up.
0: You know, it's certainly pretty common that we get, and, and we may have had an hour and a half, but an hour to an hour and a half for dire. I would say that's pretty standard. Um, and it, it the the rest of it, you know, some of it was just it was so interesting to me the way the defense handled the case. I mean, he was so brief, you know, and again, it kind of goes to when the insurance company, in this case, Liberty Mutual or the defendant just misjudges the case. You just do everything you can not to le- not to change their mind. And so part of that, right. yeah. part of that was they let, um, the Liberty Mutual kind of in-house folks try the case. They didn't bring in outside counsel. They kind of have their own folks do it. And so, and I mean, I, you know, the guy's a wonderful guy. Couldn't be any nicer, but his incentive is just not the same. And so it just made for a unique dynamic. His basic view was be kind to everybody. Don't piss off the jury and get it to verdict. And well, I mean, sometimes that can work, but, um, not always, <laughs> yeah, so it was quick. I mean, it was a two and a half day trial, um including you know all of it, and so it it moved fast,
2: yeah, I couldn't believe it. We saw you know we got the transcripts, and they were named like day one and day <laughs> right. two, and I was like, right. this can't be it
0: <laughs> like wait a minute, where's you know week two? yeah
1: <laughs> that's right. Um, and I, want, I wanted to follow up a little bit on the voir dire. So are you given, uh, is it just a general voir dire uh, and uh, you know, ask questions that people raise their hand or do you get into any sort of personal discussion with them or any kind of follow ups with them? How does that work?
0: You know, it's pretty free flowing. And so it was, I mean, I'll tell the, the fun voir dire story from this case is, so we get up and the judge who is, this is actually his very, very first uh, civil trial the judge. <laughs> And uh, he says, uh, you know, totally stone faced because you know just um, as far as reading the questions to the jury says, okay, uh, folks, this case involves an injury that involved that uh, from a gunshot. Does anybody have experience with that? And we had <laughs> eighty people on our panel, and I'm not kidding, forty to fifty raised their hands.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: E- <laughs> either either them. Or uh, or what if somebody in their family had been had had a an injury by gunshot? And so oh he my asked, goodness! So he so one of the guys is standing up and and he, he stands up and he says, "Okay, um, can you tell me a little bit about that?" He said, "Yeah, I got shot in the chest." And uh, he said, "Okay, uh, sir, did that have anything to do with the hunting hunting incident?" He said, "No, nah, it was gang related." <laughs> and <it's> Like <laughs> you know, everybody's like okay, move on. And so, you know, it was, it was, so that part of it was, was unique. And then of course the other side of it was, then you got some absolutely tragic stories of folks that were involved with gun violence. And, um, and so it was very, very free flowing, but you know, you had to, you had to really try to figure out, okay, how do I take this in and how do all these things play with each other? And, for this kind of case. And there were some folks that were on that just because of those experiences. They're like, I, I can't be in on this no matter what it has to do with. Yeah. But the judge gave us free reign to, to explore all those things as much as you can in an hour, hour and a half.
1: Right. So, I mean, it, 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 do you remember how big your Venire panel was? Was, was it? I, a, I think
0: it was about 70, 75 wow. jurors. And I remember it was the Monday after the July 4th weekend. And it was the, the old, old courthouse doesn't have air conditioning. So it oh, was man. just blazing hot. Everybody <laughs> was tired and like, are you, you know, it's one of those days where right before you stand up, you just know, and you tell yourself, okay, I need to bring some energy to this room right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. And you got about, and you got about two minutes to do it or else they're going to tune you out. <laughs> oh yeah. I and have so like we the, had go ahead Good. go ahead
2: no i just was gonna say say, i have the funniest like um mental image of this trial like (laughs) i've never been to new mexico but so in my mind it's like very like okay corral like old courthouse with bullet holes and everybody's like coming in with like cowboy hats and there's like spittoons in the corner
0: (laughs) your image is not far off i'll see (laughs) if i can send you a picture of the courthouse you know some of the it just makes it so much fun because you feel like you're stepping back in time. And, you know, cause some stuff, what goes down in that courtroom hasn't changed from 50 years ago. You know, it's that part of it really did make it fun. Um,
1: I wanted to ask you a little bit about your demonstratives. You sent us the, uh, I think the the, uh, presentation from your opening and uh, I I really uh, liked some of them, uh, you know, with the, um, it, it, it made it very clear to understand how, you know, where exactly your clients were, where the hunters were, uh, where the elk were, and uh, and then, you know, how if you aim high, uh, how it puts your clients in danger. Um, I guess I should describe, I mean, you know, so one of them is sort of uh, showing the trajectory of the bullet, you know, with the elk in there, with your clients in there. Uh, And then another showing an overhead shot of the of the two ranches so you can see exactly where it went, Uh, you know, and then one with a a sort of a a target on the elk, but aimed too high. And so you can see why it would would put them in danger. But I I really thought it was just a uh, it it really brought everything very visual um, to, to explain, you know, why this is dangerous, why, you know, you have to be careful with how you aim firearms.
0: Yeah, I really thought that as we were trying to prepare those, what we we're really thinking about was, you know, imagine the hunter that's involved and that's looking at this so that it, it to his or her eye, they sort of get it. And so now they're saying, OK, I understand why this was a dangerous shot, because what you've got is kind of a plain, a bench, essentially. And then in the background, you've got the great big trees. And so just so that the jury could sort of see for themselves exactly why this was a dangerous shot and it's sort of the hope was with the visuals okay they see it and now they're like okay i understand what happened and then secondly they're saying that's a shot you shouldn't take because there's the other property line and of course with these kind of rifles i mean they're using high-powered elk rifles so the bullets are going to travel forever
1: right were these uh were these demonstratives done in-house or did you have a um a company help you with them
0: Uh, So there's a, a, Brian Cannon is the guy's name who works with me on visuals. And so, um, so he and I kind of came up with them.
1: Yeah. Well, they look, they, I mean, they, they're really good. And they, they do just a great job of explaining, uh, you know, what exactly happened here um, and really, really bring everything home. Let's talk, let's talk about the, uh, the damages. Talk about your clients a little bit. I mean, we sort of gave a a quick, uh, you know, explanation of, uh, who Eric and Le- and Luke were, um, but talk about, you know, how you presented damages and how you were able to get the jury, you know, cause I'll be honest it, it, as, as um, you know, I, I, know that, I know that Luke got shot in the face and, and he got shot in the cheek, but, you know, as you said, they did a great job fixing it up. And yet he had some numbness, you know, and I think you said he had $5,000 in, in medical bills and then, you know, Eric got shot in the abdomen, or got a, a shrapnel in his ab- abdomen, which they couldn't remove because of where it was. And he, because he fell to the ground, had injured his back and and uh, and and torn some muscles there. But I mean, to be honest, to get a verdict of two million six hundred twenty-eight thousand for both of them, I thought was just a tremendous result. So, um, uh, you know, talk a little bit about how you how you got the jury there and how you presented that.
0: You know, this was the damages part of it was such a challenge in this case because the liability was fun. I mean, you're dealing with hunting and elk and fire and bullets. And so you got a whole bunch of really great stuff to talk about. But the damages, and that was part of the reason why I think that for me, for the longest time, I just didn't see the potential of this case. It was a case that, yeah, you go win it, but what's the value in it? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I mean, I mentioned early on that I I finally got a chance where we're heading to trial because the case never even mediated. So to visit with the clients and really start hearing their story about how this impacted them. And the other thing that we did was we did a couple of focus groups and we did them, you know, on the cheap, just kind of us hiring six to eight people and kind of telling the story to them and what was really interesting was i would get half the jury that would really relate to luke and it would understand okay if my lower lip i no longer had feeling in it and it got chapped every time i went outside <laughs> because it's now made of basically skin instead of what your lips made of and you know and and some of those things uh they really related to that and saw that as significant harm. Other people would be the opposite, and they would listen to Eric's story and say, okay, I wouldn't want to live with a piece of a bullet inside of me. What if the thing moves? What if it goes somewhere that it shouldn't? And he had a back injury also when he essentially got kind of thrown to the ground. You know, So then you had jurors who had back injuries. And so they related to that in a big way. And, you know, what the focus between the focus groups and then talking to Luke and Eric, and they were both just ultimately very, very genuine guys who didn't overplay a thing in the world that didn't really want to be there, um, but who had had this happen to them and that it really did I think was even more traumatic for them than they understood. And so once we got that from the jury, the focus group, and once we started talking to Luke and Eric, it really brought it home to me as this is a case with real damages. This isn't a case where we're just going to make up damages. This is significant. And once I got there, then it's a whole lot easier to tell their story. And so, you know, what we made the decision of was we didn't put in any medical expenses. We kept all those out, um, and then we also made sure that the focus was less on the quote medical mm-hmm. and more on the effects on their lives. And so, we had some of their friends testify, um, or at least and their spouses testify, and it just came across as a whole lot more powerful than I think I ever even envisioned it before the trial started. And so, you know, we kind of talk about as, as trial lawyers and as plaintiff's lawyers who are representing indiv- individuals, our job is to go hear from them, hear their story and understand at a real level how it's impacted their life. And even when an insurance company doesn't get it, a jury can if you tell it in a real way.
1: Ivan, uh, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are.
2: Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers, we're trial.
1: Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens?
2: When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial.
1: That's right. When you close the case, as as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. (laughs) And the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms.
2: Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's, case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it.
1: Right. So if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access case pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system.
2: Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients.
1: Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases, and it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud.
2: Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from any time, anywhere.
1: We encourage our listeners to check out casepacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's casepacer.com.
2: And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors.
1: Yeah, and I thought it sounded like both of your your clients, Luke and Eric, both are sort of... Tough guys, uh, you know, not complainers, yeah. not not guys who would go out and whine about, you know, how they hurt. And I, I I saw, you know, that you, you know, brought that up during their examinations. And um, you know, and I, I think you asked Luke, you know, you, you know, uh, does Eric complain much? And he says no. And he said, Would you let him complain if he tried? And he said, <laughs> No, I wouldn't let him complain. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Well, and the the fun part about that, I mean, they were super close, you know, and they right. they um so they were able to kind of talk about each other a little bit. But, you know, again, I mean, and you guys know this and the damage is you don't have to do as much sometimes as we think we need to. I mean, if you can get little bits of it from three or four different witnesses, mm-hmm. then the jury runs with it, you know, if they're with you. And one of the things I talked to after the trial, talked to the, the Army Ranger juror. And he was kind of telling me about his back injury from when he was in the military and how much, you know, he he went to bat for us once they got back there in the room. Um, But one other thing on that was, you know, as I was talking to Luke's wife, you know, what she was telling me early on when she was just sort of giving me the initial parts of the case was about how she couldn't kiss Luke in the same way anymore. and. So then I talked about that in one of the focus groups and the focus group jurors absolutely hated me bringing that up. They thought it, and the reason is it it fit with everything that they assumed I would do as a stereotypical plaintiff's lawyer, right? Right. I'm pulling on heartstrings. I'm talking about, you can't kiss your wife anymore. You can't kiss your husband anymore. And it, it was just too much to actually talk about. So it was one of those things, and it was a great lesson from the focus group, was let the jury figure that out or talk about it, but they're not going to hear it from me, at least not in any real significant way. And so sometimes, you know, the focus groups are as helpful as anything to know where we stay away from um, as it is to what to talk about.
2: Um. So I'm really interested in the fact that you – um. obviously it was effective, but that also that you were able to kind of set these up yourself. And and I'm curious when you do it, um, you know, do you approach it? Like, do you tell them, you know, who you are or, you know, do you give them kind of a, do you give them mock arguments on each side? Do you try to give them kind of a neutral explanation? How do you handle that part?
0: Yeah. Usually what we wind up doing, at least, especially on the first kind of focus group is tell the jury, we were brought in. We're not involved with either side of this case. It's a real case that's going to trial. We get involved in cases to see what's going to happen with the jury. So let me just tell you about the case. And then so we just start talking about the case with the jurors, trying to give them as fair and accurate a picture as we can and, and hear them tell us what they think about the case, kind of you know, giving them little bits of facts as we go. And just letting the discussion go however direction it does. Um, So those are, and I honestly, especially early on in a case where you're really trying to figure out what stories you want to tell, I think those are very, very effective. Late, and I don't even remember if we did that in this case. Um, Late, sometimes we'll do a focus group where we're actually, okay, I'm going to now go give my opening and then somebody else will give their, right. you know, the defense opening and kind of do it that way. But most of the time, the ones where we're just doing them on our own, it's just, we're not for either side and just kind of getting jurors talking about it.
2: And how early, how early do you like to do focus groups, whether it's this case or just any case?
0: Oh, I, I wish I could say I do them when I get a case in and all that good <laughs> stuff. But the truth is they happen yeah. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I know it, they do right, for us. <laughs> right, they they happen the, the the Friday after the mediation fails. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah, <laughs> so so they don't have it real early. Once in yeah. a while, I've done that, but you know, not all, not as a matter of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah as i um, say
1: we practice in the real world right, right. oh yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely well i want i want to hear a little bit more you so you you did get to talk to jurors afterwards and you mentioned uh, uh talking to the uh, the army ranger but did you hear anything else from uh, any other jurors that um that you thought was helpful as far as uh, uh you know how the case went
0: yeah we talked to a few of the other jurors and um and really what what they had talked about was they still kind of, the jurors got hung up on, okay, is this just a freak accident or not? Was there negligence? You know, which blew my mind because we got the primary witness from the defendant to say in no uncertain terms, yes, I made a mistake. Yes, it was negligent. Yes, I shouldn't have taken that shot. And you still had jurors that didn't want to go there. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course they got over the hurdle, but, You know, it's still just you think, oh, well, that's such a foregone conclusion. Um, But I think the jurors, they want to get there on their own. And so, you know, we didn't move for directed verdict, even though we had the primary defendant say I was negligent and nothing on the other side of it. It was kind of one of those decisions where I didn't want the directed verdict because I wanted the jury. I didn't want them to be told they had to make that decision. You know, you wanted them to own it. Um, but it was still a bit of a fight. Um, uh, and so that was kind of one of the things. And, and I think what got him over the hump was the other jurors who were with us and the other mm-hmm. jurors who were hunters can say, okay, I understand that it was a crazy thing, but here's why it was negligent. Right. Um, right. so that was kind of just in terms of arming the jurors that you think you're going to go back there and battle for again. Um, it was such a good lesson that that always pays off. And of course, the other thing, you know, the danger of talking to jurors, right, is you learn what the jury didn't do. And so in New Mexico, it takes 10 out of 12 to get a verdict. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about damages and kind of how we got to those numbers in a second. But when the jury ultimately got to the, the five million two hundred and fifty number, um, nine of the jurors were ready to give us Eight. But they couldn't get the ten.
3: <laughs> oh, no. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. it's it like I could have done without that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's always one. It's holding it holding it down. We we've definitely right? been there before. <laughs> and it's like
2: you'd probably it'd probably be better just to not know.
1: Like, yeah, exactly. of course, you feel like <laughs>
0: you're good, don't you? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit. You know, so the the verdict amount, you know, as you mentioned already, you didn't put the medical bills in, uh, which I agree with. I mean, that would have just anchored them to a much lower number. Um, But uh, they they gave the exact same amount for Eric and Luke. They gave two million six hundred twenty eight thousand a piece um, and, uh, for a total verdict of 5,256,000. Um, <clears throat> do you want, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell the jury how you, uh, were able to get them there as far as, uh, as far as how they could think about the damages, uh, in this case and, and, um, and, and what you did in closing.
0: Sure. So one of the decisions that we had to make was, are we going to ask for the same thing for both guys? I mean, I think the reality was that the, the injury to Luke was more significant. Um, it was, I mean, he got shot in the face and he had—he actually had plastic surgery. Um, but, you know, my feeling of it, and really, f- again, from talking to the focus group in some ways, was that let's let Luke's damages drive the damages for both of them. I shouldn't be the one to say who deserves more than the other. They were both basically the same age. They were essentially 50, I think, Luke may have been 48 or 49 and Eric was 51, but they were really essentially the same age. And so I just, we just kind of made the decision. Let's, let's present the damages the same for both of them. And so the way that we walked through it um, was, it was a per diem argument was essentially what we did, but the way that we did it and, and, you know, all of us as trial lawyers, and I think that's why you know, your podcast is ultimately so, so helpful is because we all steal from each other. Right. And we all, you know, <laughs> as, as one of my mentors says, because hey, I haven't had an original thought in 30 years. And, uh, <laughs> right. but we, you know, so, so I say the same. And, and certainly I've watched a whole bunch of, uh, of Nick Rowley and some of his trials and read some of his books. And, you know, what he talks about is, okay, you know, what if somebody knocked on your door and they came up to you and they said, Luke, I've got a deal for you. And the deal I've got for you is I'm going to pay you. and I'm going to pay you $10 to $20 an hour. And I'm going to pay you every minute that you're awake um, for the rest of your life. You're never going to get a day off, but you're going to get paid every single day. And so Luke says, okay, well, tell me, what, what do I have to do to get this job? And so what I then talked to the jury about, and I told him basically exactly that situation. I said, except Luke, here's what you're going to have to do to get that job. You're going to get shot in the face. And you're going to have surgery and you're going to lose the sensation of your lip. And it's never going to be something that comes back. And it's going to be something that's there with you when you wake up. It's going to be there with you when you go to sleep. And it's going to change how you eat, how you drink, how you, um, in how you talk to other people. And it's going to be on your mind every minute of every day. But don't worry about it because you're going to get $10 an hour. And so then, you know, Luke, would you take that job? And I kind of looked at Luke when I said that. And he had no idea what I was going to do. Right. And, you know, he's just sitting there shaking his head saying, hell no, I wouldn't <laughs> say, well, what about $15 an hour? That'd be worth it, wouldn't it? You know, what about 20? And then you just kind of let it sit there. And, you know, and then I, I did the same thing with Eric and with Eric's injuries. Except, so, you know, for Eric, it's carrying the bullet in your side it's you're going to get thrown over onto your back and it's going to throw your back out in such a way that you're not going to be able to do the things that you've done your whole life. Karate, running in races, doing uh, marathons. You're not going to be able to do those things anymore. And and what it allowed for this jury, and again, what, you know, Rio Arriba County is an extremely rural county and it's also an extremely poor county. I mean, there was not a person on our jury that probably had ever made $50,000 in a single year. And we had people on our jury who were from some of the, I think it's part of the, the tribe, the Pueblos, um, that were talking about hunting because it's subsistence hunting. I mean, they still go hunt elk so that they can provide food for their families. But what, they, what, what all juries understand is per hour, and so the debate in the jury room, and this was also what we got from the, the jurors that we actually spoke to afterwards, they weren't debating $4 million versus $5 million versus $8 million. They were debating $10, $15, or $20. And so it put it into the context that worked for every one of those jurors. And they're sitting there saying, you know, $15 bucks an hour is nothing. And OK, yeah, it adds up to a whole lot. But that's because these guys have to live with it for 35 years. And so I think it gave them, you know, with no anchors, because we weren't able to put in anything, you know, the judge, um, I think mistakenly, but, you know, we'll live with it, um, granted directed verdict on punitive damages directly before closing. So part of the closing was intended to be sort of talking about those things, because then you could put in net worth and some of those anchors, but we didn't get to do that. But the jury didn't need that because it became about per hour. And the the jury – so I gave them the range of $10 per hour, $15 per hour, or $20 per hour, 16 hours a day because that's the amount of time that you're awake for the rest of their life, and then just did the math for them. And they picked exactly the one in the middle to the dollar. (laughs) Right, right.
2: I also love that too because even though you got – they awarded more than that and you got more than that, you've already also set it at, at a minimum of $10, you know, like their discussion's not going below $10 an hour, right?
0: Right. you know, because that's the first option you
2: gave them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nobody, you know, because who would pay less than 10 bucks an hour? Right. Right. right, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It started at $5 an hour. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It didn't. It so it framed it right there. And you know, the four person was the one that um, she stuck at the 15 figure from the word go and she was one of the three that the other jurors wanted to give the twenty dollars an hour, the nine of the twelve, and uh, she just stuck at the fifteen, and and you know that was fine. I mean, we were right. more than happy with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, this has uh, just been a, a great discussion and uh, and a great job by you and and um, and um, a really a great result for your clients. And I hope they're doing well uh, or, or or doing better now. Um, is there anything else that, uh, that we haven't talked about the trial that you want to make sure that our listeners have heard?
0: You know, the only other thing that's worth mentioning is that, um, after the verdict, and I think this happens to us more times than we know. So the, they told us the whole time during trial, there was a $1 million policy and that was it. And they just swore on that. They swore on it. They swore, they swore, they swore um and so at one point we said okay we'll take your policy and we'll be done with it and fortunately they said no um after the verdict and we file all our motions then lo and behold they produce for the first time a five million dollar excess policy wow and so and the judge you know went absolutely ballistic when he learned that that had been hidden for all these years and everything else but it just it it you know we know that happens we've all seen it happen but when it you know when it happens again, and just in a caught red-handed kind of way, um, it just makes you. I mean, you know, I don't know how it changes you other than just forcing them to, you know, affidavits or whatever it is. But it was something that it just it was, and ultimately it helped us because then they had they were terrified of an appeal because of just the bad conduct, and so, right? You know, they they decided not to do that. But uh, yeah, especially, that's the only other thing worth mentioning,
2: especially after the verdict. I mean, as you said you know, they made it easy for you in terms of making the decision to go to trial, but you know, what if they hadn't, what if you had, yeah. um, you know, what if it wasn't an easy, easy decision that,
0: that makes me crazy. Right. <laughs> what if they had offered the million?
2: Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. And
0: then we would have said, okay, I mean, I guess that's all that's there. Sorry, folks. Yeah, you know, or if so you, you know, if yeah. your
2: clients didn't want to go through trial, and so you know they were willing to go under policy limits, who knows? Like, yeah. and then you would have found out there were that there was an excess policy. Well, I guess you never when, would have found
0: out. Yeah, right. That's the hell of it,
1: isn't it? Yeah, You'd have never found out. I agree with you. It happens more than than we think, and I, I we've uh, had it happen to us, and we we've actually had the other side sanctioned a couple of times for it, including one that happened right during trial and sort of blew everything up. Um wow. But uh yeah, so it's um it, I feel
2: like it's it's like it's, a, like it's like some documents in a products case that, mm-hmm. that come up yeah. right, maybe right before trial. Always. Yeah.
1: Right. Oh yeah. And if Somehow. it's not that
2: then it's some kind of insurance policy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, uh, let me just remind everybody, we've been talking to, uh, well, uh, first, we've been talking about Armstrong versus Express Ranches LLC, which was tried in Rio Arriba County, New Mexico in July of 2019 and ended in a $5,256,000 verdict for Eric and Luke Armstrong. And we have been talking to Lee Hunt, who's uh, of the Hunt Law Firm. And uh, Lee is based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you can look him up at HuntLaw.com. Lee, thank you so much for your time. This has been just a great, uh, great conversation. All right, Yvonne, Steve, thank you so much for what you do. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to The Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with, or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've we uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a, a glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website.
2: Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great trials, com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We,
1: we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
2: Thank you for listening.